So good morning and welcome. Um, there are about 50 folks on the telephone, so I'll speak slightly more loudly and deliberately than would seem natural in, in this setting. Uh, but welcome to Robinhood. My name is Eric Weingartner, and I have a role in managing uh, the grants here. Um, and just going to give you a quick primer on Robinhood to set the context for today and um, introduce you then to my colleague, Sarah Oltmans, who runs the health portfolio at Robinhood, and Vion Behel, who does some of our health work, but primarily leads our focus on uh, immigrants and immigrant families. Um, so Robinhood is, we're in our 28th year, and we're the largest poverty-fighting focused program and foundation in New York City. And this year, we'll remarkably invest $130 million in organizations that fight poverty across a range of subject areas. Uh, we are diverse in that we think about early childhood, we think about K-12 education, we think about disconnected young adults, and then we think about adults and families living in poverty across a range of sub-portfolios, including a focus on immigrants living in poverty, health, housing, connection to benefits, legal services, and other. Um, and um, since our founding, we have paid particularly close attention to supporting immigrants and immigrant families living in poverty, but that attention has ramped up over the course of the last five, six years. Uh, three years ago, we began um, a concentrated um, investment via uh, a fundraising success that we had, and we called it the American Dream Fund, and we designated $35 million to both new and existing Robinhood grants focused on immigrants living in poverty. That spirit brings us here today as we're still slightly spending down that fund, but always open for business across the board. Um, and um, our increasingly trying to facilitate a conversation across New York City where we're getting the best ideas into Robinhood. And Robinhood is open for business every day that we're open um, from the perspective of getting good ideas to push in the door here. But in particular, we're using this RFC um, to more deliberately and in a unique way drive a conversation about two particular areas that we're seeking new ideas. One is around how to serve uh, Chinese immigrants living in poverty, and one focused a little bit more broadly, focused on immigrants in healthcare and attaching uh, immigrants um, in the healthcare space to better outcomes for chronic disease and uh, um, um, primary care. Um, so that's what we're doing here. Uh, directionally, Robinhood stays the same, and this is our way to augment our general sort of operating procedure in terms of how to get in good ideas by deliberately shooting out to you all and to the broader community a request for your best thinking on immigrant health. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time for the next five or ten minutes giving you a little bit more background about this RFC and then take your questions just to make sure that you have total clarity about how to respond to this RFC if it is in fact a good fit for you. Um, and we're psyched that you're here and thank you for coming and thank you for your interest. So let me introduce you to Sarah. First off, I just want to say thank you, everyone, uh, for coming, and thanks to the folks that called in this morning. Um, we're going to spend most of the time just answering your questions, but since for many of you this may be your first introduction to Robinhood, I wanted to give you a little bit of background just to, to set the stage. Um, so this session is focused on immigrants, 
or Latinos and their health. So just to make that distinction, so with the Latino population, it can be both foreign-born or uh, U.S.-born, partially because we know that there are issues that that population might face, even if they're U.S.-born, that may be similar to a foreign-born population. So just want to start up front with that. Um, so as Eric mentioned, we're a poverty-fighting organization. So what that means in terms of how we make grants is that all of our grants have an impact on the income or the health of the people that we serve. Um, typically, well, all of our grants focus on uh, families that are within 200% of the poverty line and all within the five boroughs of New York City. Uh, within that framework, part of what we think about is the cost of a program. So not just the benefits of the program, but what a program actually costs to run. So all of our grants, uh, we end up doing sort of a cost-benefit analysis on that. Um, no need to sort of focus too much on the details of that. The one thing I would mention is, is that we do focus on what a budget looks like, what it costs to get a successful outcome. So when you're thinking about submitting a proposal to us, do keep sort of both sides of that equation in mind. What are the benefits to the family, but also really what does it cost to achieve that outcome. So within that larger framework, we're open to a lot of different things. So we work with startup organizations, we work with large, well-established organizations, um, we're interested in proposals that, for programs that already exist or pilots that are testing something new. Um, we work with nonprofits, uh, government organizations, and even for-profits in some cases. Um, generally, I would say the vast majority of our programs are evidence-based programs, but in some cases we may be looking at testing a new model that's sort of building off of the evidence that already exists. So within that framework, there are a lot of different things that we're open to, and Viom's going to spend a little bit more time talking about, first of all, just the logistics of this process, but also that evaluation process, and then hopefully we can sort of get into some of the details of your questions and hopefully um, make sure that everybody is ready to submit proposals to us. So just to run through the logistics really quickly, as outlined in the request for concept papers that you all have already read, we are asking for concept papers to be submitted by April 1st at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, at which point our website will stop accepting submissions. Each organization can submit up to two concept papers, and each submission should be ideally, well, not ideally, actually one PDF file, uh, and it's a maximum of four pages. So no attachments, no appendices, no budgets, no cover letters required. If you want to include a diagram or if you want to include footnotes, please feel free to do so within the four-page limit. Uh, we will review the proposals as they come in, but there's no priority given to the ones that come first, so take your time to come up with the best proposals you can. But we anticipate that we'll get back to everybody by May 31st with a preliminary response. In some cases, that'll be a thank you, but we won't be pursuing this forward. In other cases, we'll be starting a conversation. It'll either be, let's have a meeting, it'll be, send us uh, responses to some preliminary questions we might have, or it might be let's have a meeting to talk through what you're discussing, what you're proposing. Um, we won't be able to give individual feedback to everyone that applies, um, but we will carry forward those conversations as I described. The other thing to note is that there isn't a predetermined pot of money for these proposals, there isn't a predetermined number of grants that we'll make, and there isn't a predetermined timeline on which those grants will be made. All of that will be handled on a case-by-case -case basis, as is typical with our grant making. This is really just about generating good ideas to address the health needs that Sarah and Eric have already outlined for you. So how will we evaluate the proposals? Essentially, our evaluation for all of our grant making fits into three broad buckets. And the first is by far the most important. 
that has to do with what the program model actually is. Can you demonstrate that there is a need? Can you provide us a program model that we think will actually quantifiably and measurably address that need using some sort of an evidence base or building off an evidence base, as Sarah said? And can you do so cost effectively? That's the first criteria. And if the proposal doesn't meet those criteria, then that's typically where the conversation stops. But if it does meet those criteria, we'll consider, continue to evaluate it on the other two buckets that I think are important for our grant making. The first has to do with the extent to which your organization is actually positioned to deliver on the outcomes that you're talking about. You have a leader that's promising or already has a track record in delivering the service. Your organization has the financial stability and the board and the community partnerships if required to be able to uh, implement the program well and that you have the cultural and linguistic competencies that are required to be able to serve immigrant or Latino communities in New York City. And then finally, the third bucket is really a question about what happens when we invest in this program beyond this program itself, beyond this grant itself. Is there potential to scale this model? Is there potential for public-private partnerships? Is this program innovating in a way that would actually be really valuable for the field? Uh, is there potential for Medicaid reimbursement in the context of healthcare? Um, if you're working with an undocumented population, we presume that's not really in, in the works, but if you have a population that can be insured, are insurers excited about this model and why? Um, so that's the, that's the gist, the three buckets that we really look at each of these proposals with, um, but I'm, I'm sure you'll have lots of questions to, to follow up on that. That's the end of our preamble, because we really did want to dedicate the vast majority of our time to questions, and so the way this will work is we'll start with questions in the room. As Eric said, I think we actually have 60 or some odd folks on the phone as well. So folks on the phone will come to you after we've exhausted some of the questions in the room. And on the phone, we'll ask you to hit star six, and that will place you in the queue to uh, be able to ask a question. So take it away, folks. Yeah. Yeah. I know you guys don't have a preconceived notion about how the project will roll out and what you'll see from everyone in the room and on the phone, but um, do you think there'll be any preference given to projects that are collaboration among several organizations, or what are, what's your thinking on that with a kind of lead partner and then other partners? So just for the folks on the phone, in case you couldn't hear the question, uh, the question was, will there be preference given to collaboration collaborations versus individual organizations? I think the answer is no, not necessarily. I think it's just whatever makes the most sense. So if a collaboration allows you to get scale that you wouldn't be able to get as an individual organization, then yes, that can strengthen a proposal, but we're, we don't have a predetermined notion about whether it's an individual organization or a group of organizations. So just so I make sure I understand the question, you're asking can a government entity apply for a grant or? So the, I think the question was getting at how, do we, how are we thinking about the relationship of governments in this grant? And so I would answer the question just sort of directly on two, two levels. One is that government can apply for a grant via this RFC, presuming that there's an intermediary from a fiscal standpoint for us to pay someone. So that's just logistically, that's the answer to part one. 
Part two is, is that it's really no different than your question before about collaboration. If government is a partner in this grant, great. If it makes sense and it's a strong proposal, then terrific. We'll look at it that way. But we don't, the same way that you asked the question about collaborations, we're looking for innovative, interesting, provocative proposals. And if government is a part of that, terrific. But it's not viewed by Robinhood or the folks that are going to look at these proposals as being a strength or weakness. It's really all based on the program approach. The one, the one thing I'd add to that is just in healthcare in general, government probably comes into play in most cases. I mean, certainly there's the undocumented population, but even within that, the healthcare system and sort of what's happening, it is a big piece of what's out there. So being at least aware of how the program fits within that context, I think is important. And, Liz, and just, just, this is just helpful, I think, for all of you on the phone and here. If you look at the programs that Robinhood has funded traditionally in the healthcare space, the vast majority of the programs focus on people who are on Medicaid and Medicare. So if there's an impact systemically on the way that Medicaid works, that's super interesting to the point that Vion was talking about around scale. Yes, ma'am. Are there any restrictions to um, subcontracts or subgrants so our strategy is to reinvest yes. a lot of our money to pay? Yes. The, the question was about subcontracting, and no, it's essentially the same as the collaboration question okay. in a different in a different vein, and the answer is no. We would entertain proposals with subcontracts or not. The, the only thing I would say about that is that subcontracts is just managing many different pieces, and sometimes you don't have as much of a direct influence over a subcontract. So just as long as the, the partnership is clear and the expectations are clear, I think that that is fine within a context of a proposal. Yes, ma'am. How important is scalability? No. There's so no, the sorry. question was, is there a preference for a specific age group? The answer is no. 
open to everything. I think the only thing I would just add on that is that if you're working with a younger population for whom the outcomes we expect really won't be visible potentially 10, 20 years down the road, the adhering to an evidence base that says this program actually is likely to produce those outcomes becomes that much more important. Uh, my question is regarding the outcome. So the RFP is suggesting a 12 to 18 month project guideline. I know you're looking for short-term, medium-term, long-term outcomes. Any guidance you can offer as we're thinking about this as an initial 12 to 18 months and some of the, the long-term outcomes might be three to five years down the road? Good question. Right. So the question, just to the folks on phone, was given the fact that the RFC sort of lays out a 12-month grant period up to 18 months, uh, especially for startup programs or newer programs, how do we think about sort of short-term, medium-term, and longer-term outcomes, especially when some of those outcomes may be several years down the road? I think to Guillaume's point about really longer-term down the road, then having an evidence base is important. Slightly shorter-term, I think most programs are able to show at least some interim outputs, interim outcomes that are then able, we would be able to tell after 12 months whether or not we would consider renewing the grant for another year. Most of our grants, and actually all of our grants are made on an annual basis, but we do often renew grants year after year, uh, knowing that outcomes, especially very meaningful outcomes, often don't happen within a 12-month time frame. The only thing I would add is that I think often in the healthcare context, people fixate on reducing costs to the system over a long period of time. That is not a metric by which Robinhood judges our brands. We're fixated on individual outcomes for individual New Yorkers and their individual health. Thank you. Yeah, just sort of piggybacking on that question, I was thinking about how you would look at mental health outcomes, mm -hmm. which are sort of foster as far as people like success in that time frame, versus say a health like an intervention around like a Right. So the question was specifically about measuring mental health outcomes as opposed to physical health outcomes, which may be a little harder to measure, um, especially in a shorter term. Two pieces to that. One, as much as possible where validated scales exist, trying to use measures um, that literature supports that can show a, a change, I think is very important. Um, the other thing that we take into account is that sometimes people have an acute mental health issue, but then it would get better on its own. So we need to make sure that we understand that the intervention itself is the thing that's producing that change in the longer term. Again, I would still go back to some of the same outputs, medium-term outcomes, and then longer-term outcomes. But this is where sort of that logic model that you put together should sort of show some of that. And not, we're not necessarily looking for a logic model where there's a five-page document, but at least helping us understand what outcomes you expect to happen as a result of it. But definitely in the case where validated scales exist, like depression, you know, please try and include those, those measures. The RFP identifies Chinese, Dominican, Mexican, Puerto Rican, um, but at the same time you, you kind of open with that the foundation is open to other communities. Um, I, so my question is really about the strong, how strong the preference is. I know Chinese is identified as separately, mm -hmm. um, but to other possibly emerging immigrant communities that are not noted here but, and that surveillance data may not show yet um, too much, such as uh, like the West African community. Mm -hmm. um, so how open you know, is the foundation to assessing this? So the question in this case was about the, the communities that we specifically identified in the request for concept papers, Chinese, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, um, that we sort of highlighted as groups that have high rates of poverty. Uh, I, I think everything is open um, as long as you make sure you show the need 
think that's the piece that we need to understand. So including in the, the concept paper what need it is you're trying to address. The size of that need is really helpful, especially if it's an area where we might not be as aware of, of that issue. Trying to highlight that would be really important. And like internal data would also be acceptable to Internal data, if, if you have surveys, sure, we would certainly look at that. And obviously, when it comes to health data, we rely a ton on the city's uh, resources, the surveillance data that they have. But if there are uh, other pieces of data that you think you can add mm -hmm. to, the, to the full picture, I think we're, we're open to hearing that. It's a good question. So the question is, how receptive are we to preventative health measures? So this goes back to sort of the shorter term versus longer term. I think we are more comfortable with a longer term time horizon than maybe your Medicaid managed care partners are. Um, having said that, again, it may take uh, some evidence base if it's going to be a longer term outcome. So if you're talking about a kid with obesity and what's sort of the longer term impact on diabetes as an adult, we really need to see a strong link between what steps you think are going to happen through the program and what is going to happen longer term. I think there the question of cost also comes into play. And so if you're doing a general population intervention, the likelihood that one individual, you'll find a substantial number of individuals who are going to be preventing a particular condition is probably lower than if you were to find an at-risk cohort and focus on them. So depending on what the health issue is, that narrowness of focus is also going to be valuable. I think that's also just a moment to underscore that we're interested in, we're not interested in education or direct service or, or research programs that aren't tied to direct service in some way. But the uh, demographic focus of the household income is under 200%. The food, we, um, in our case, we may be focusing on high school students and the parents in Title I schools. Uh, is that the Title I, or, you know, because obviously that, that matters poverty, would that be sufficient, or do we need to actually demonstrate even more, like, I think that, um, yeah, the question was whether or not if you're working and trying to capture a population via school-based uh, catchment, both kids and parents, would Title I count as being enough of an indicator as to whether or not the poverty threshold hits at where we're going? I would say that the answer is generally it's a decent proxy, but you probably would want to dig a little deeper to verify that the majority of the cohort is, in fact, below 200% because we wouldn't move forward with a proposal where we weren't very sure of that. So, my, so I think I answered your question most of the way. I think it's a decent way for you to investigate it, but I think you'd probably need to give us more. Maybe we'll take a few questions from the phone. So if folks just want to hit star if you have a question on the phone, if you hit star six, it will put you into the queue to, to ask a question. Other questions on the phone? Yes, hi. Good morning. Is domestic violence considered a health issue? A domestic violence could be considered a health issue, especially if you're able to design a program that is able to have a measurable impact on the health outcomes then yes. 
Thank you. Hi, good afternoon. I wanted to find out if um, higher learning institutions would be eligible for this grant um, to support a, an existing program that addresses um, issues of food um, injustices, food accessibility, um, and also provides opportunities for academic instruction and, and linkage to the workforce for students that are um, coming from underserved communities. So for this specific request for concept papers, we are focused completely on health and mental health outcomes. So if the focus of a proposal was on uh, higher education outcomes, it would be less likely to be included in this request for concept papers. In terms of the broader question about whether or not a higher uh, uh, institution could be applying for a grant, yes. That, okay. that's but it also just making sure that, again, the population that you're serving is within 200% of the poverty line. Right. So if it's if not not to utilize the grant to provide funding for higher education, but it's to provide a program within an institution of higher education that addresses um, issues of food um, injustice um, and um, in a food desert. Uh, Potentially, yes. I think the one thing that I would say is, is make sure whatever proposal you put in shows the direct link between what the intervention is and how that will impact health outcomes. And to the extent that you're interested in focusing on Chinese students, if those are a, among the at-risk students that you've, you've identified, then that would certainly fit within the criteria of the other RFC that Robin Hood has released at the same time. Um, but also, to Eric's point from earlier in the conversation, Robin is open for business across a wide area, across all of the issue areas, and so for folks who have ideas that don't necessarily fit within these two requests for concepts, we encourage you to get in touch with Robinhood as you ordinarily would. The easiest way to do that is to go to the link on our, on our website for Get Funding and to send an email to grants at robinhood.org, and that detail is in, in the RFC as well. Hi, our question was, are we able to do two concept papers, one on um, immigrant population and then the second on uh, the larger uh, Latino population? Yes, I think we've, we've left it open for people to submit two concept papers. So um, you could do one high-risk one and one safer one or focus on two different populations. Um, but yes, we keep, we're accepting two from each uh, institution. Thank you. Oh, hi. My question had to do with the idea of the ramp-up. Is this, when you write up the application, and this is a new program, how do we indicate a timeline? Do we indicate, rather, a timeline as to what happens during ramp-up? I'm just yeah, a little I think, confused. I think that's fine. Just, just give us a little bit of background on why this, this extra six months is necessary to, to launch the program. Okay, thank you. As an extra point, I think if, as we sort of move through the process, some of those details, if we decide to move forward with the project, we can work out some of those details too in person. So don't, don't spend your four pages just uh, explaining what's going to happen in the first six months. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah, hi. Good morning. Um, I have two questions. Um, the first is related to one that another, I believe another person asked. Um, if we're proposing a school-based intervention, um, the metric of poverty that we have available to us is whether or not the children qualify for free or reduced-price lunch. 
And I guess I'm wondering if that if that would be um, adequate in terms of uh, demonstrating that we'd be reaching the correct population. And then my second question is um, beyond what the uh, within the requirements that are listed in the call for proposals. Um, you indicate a, a preliminary program budget and an estimated cost per participant, but should we also plan on including a formal cost effectiveness analysis, or should we, or is that something that we could talk about if the proposal was acceptable? So for your first question about free and reduced price uh, lunch at schools, I think that that is a good measure. Um, and okay. aligns pretty closely with the poverty line. Um, in terms of the second question, uh, in terms of the second question about whether or not you need to give us a cost-effectiveness model, I mean, it's not negotiable from the perspective that we need a budget, we need a cost per participant um, in terms of your submission. My suspicion is, though, that, well, it's absolutely not compulsory that you have to submit a cost-effectiveness model. Um, that said, if you want to include to us evidence around why you believe that your program pitch is cost-effective and includes some data and explanation about why that's compelling in the model, that's up to you, and it might be effective, but it's not compulsory. Got it. Okay, thank you. Is there another question on the phone? Any other questions here? So, sorry. Um, you think you have the wrong committee? Pardon me. Okay. Go ahead, Beth. By uh, May, May 31st. About when would grant periods, would you be thinking about grant periods starting? So the question is just about the timeline specifically about, first of all, it's getting back to people on the projects, but then when a grant might actually start. It probably depends a little bit project by project. We, at the very latest, will get back to everybody by May 31st. Um, but in some cases, conversations may take longer and it may be a, a longer period. Our board does meet quarterly, so in terms of just queuing things up, it's when proposals are ready to go. That would be when we would go forward with the board, but there's not, there's not a specific timeline and it probably will vary grant by grant. You can see a project that starts uh, January 20, uh, 2017. Correct. It could be January 2017, yes. I mean, ho we are hoping to make some grants this year. We're, you know, the timeline, we're not necessarily looking for two years from now, but um, in theory it is possible if there's a project that we think still needs some time to sort of get developed um, and really flush it out a little bit more, it may take longer. And those conversations could, I suppose, go into next year. You could, in yeah, theory, or, or, see that. But that is not our, it's not necessarily our goal. Right. So, September 2016. Other questions? Yeah, over here, sir. Okay. So the question was specifically around research that's not tied to uh, direct service or if we are open to research with direct service, what does that look like? So Robinhood does fund a number of research projects, um, randomized control trials in some cases, quasi-experimental studies in other cases, but they are 
Um, in all cases, there is a direct service component. So you can see this um, most commonly happening when somebody is testing out a new model. Um, there's a, a reason why we think that that model could demonstrate something that's important to the field, but we do believe that the evidence base needs to be built up more. Robinhood is willing to support that evaluation component to it, um, but we wouldn't fund just an evaluation if there was no direct service component. So having both aspects so that we can understand both the impact on those individuals that are being served through the Robinhood grant, mm -hmm. but also potentially the impact for the field. We have a couple more questions. Why don't we take this one other question in the room and then go back to this one. Um, just going back to the prevention discussion for a moment um, related to sustainability, because we have a lot of interest in educating and increasing prevention for these difficult populations in Latinos. However, obviously we're very concerned about sustainability as well. Would you be evaluating proposals based on that, or would the prevention proposal still be considered so the question is specifically around a prevention program and how if we would consider a program if sustainability was an issue sort of and could we keep something going. I think we would still be open to a prevention program. Robinhood does make many grants year after year. I think we see that especially in the case of some of our immigrant programs where we know that there is no government entity to come in and pay for that program. So if a program is achieving meaningful outcomes for the families it's serving, that we would consider funding it uh, year after year. Let's turn to a couple questions on the phone. Hi, good morning. This is Shamit Luhar, CEO of uh, Vita Health. I really appreciate all the, um, the insight. My question is really around uh, population sizes. I know you're looking for not only – there's an emphasis on not only uh, outcomes related to uh, cost, but then also clinical outcomes as well. Can you talk a little bit about the, uh, the ideal population size that your, that your grants typically uh, encompass? Sure, I can, I can try and answer that. I think the, the short answer is that there really isn't a population size. Ultimately, we focus on cost efficiency. Mm -hmm. Some of our programs that are focused on very narrow populations, for example, hepatitis B in Chinese immigrant communities, we're serving a couple, a couple hundred people a year through that grant. Other interventions, mm -hmm. for example, partnering with New York City on the direct access program for undocumented immigrant access to healthcare, we're hoping we'll scale to tens of thousands of people. Really, it's about what the issue is, what the size of the problem is, and what's the most cost-effective way for us to get at it. Yeah, and just sort of going back to the intro that Vion gave at the beginning, sort of thinking of those three tiers of evaluation, really starting up front with the, what's the program model and what's the impact going to be on the families, moving down to sort of the organizational capacity, and then thirdly, thinking about is this going to shape the field, is it going to be something that's scalable, those are sort of the, the third-tier questions that we would ask about any proposal. And, you know, if you were to say you really wanted to focus on the health of women who've been sex trafficked, that's by, nature, by very nature a small population. If you wanted to focus on Bangladeshi immigrants and mental health, that by its nature in New York City is a small population, we wouldn't expect that that would be scaled to tens of thousands. Very good. Thank you.
Hi, good afternoon. My name is, um, good morning, sorry. My name is Melissa Barber, and I've actually been, um, my focus or the project that I want to focus on um, has to do with autism and around families who have loved ones um, in that population. So I think some of my questions has been answered because some of it had to do with population size. Some of it also had to do with implement, uh, implementing research models that kind of work in bringing them to specific areas and geographical focuses that um, of our area. I live in the South Bronx um, that have never been focused on before, but I guess I kind of reword questions into, uh, I guess, what I'm thinking. So if our model is to kind of help families with autism in terms of outcomes based to improve the health of those, um, um, their loved ones or students um, in that population, you know, would you guys specifically take the research model and kind of develop it or help us develop it such that there's no model that um, in our specific area but has been done in another specific place or another state to have great outcomes, would that be something that you guys would be looking for to help out as well? So hopefully I'm understanding the question correctly, but if there's a model that's been tested in another state or city and you want mm -hmm. to bring it to York City, we are very open to that, especially when there are models that have been successful other places and need to be brought to New York City. I think that that is a, a great example of a, a program that we would, we would consider. Okay. Thank you. Just a reminder for folks on the phone, if you have a question, please dial star six uh, to be placed into the queue. Anyone else from the room? Okay, well, great. So given that there are no I'm more sorry. questions, oh, no, one, more qu one more question, sorry. <laughs> Hi, this is Kavita Mangal. I'm a graduate student at the Wharton Business School, and I'm working on a business idea where we are trying to build uh, better operational efficiency in the healthcare system, which will encourage patients to see more doctors and uh, help overall improve patient outcomes. Is that some, uh, uh, some kind of an idea that you would consider? So I think only if you are able to show for this that it will have on health outcomes. So I think efficiency can be something that's important. Obviously, in the healthcare system, it's very important, but we would need to understand how that is changing specific clinical outcomes for the families. Okay. okay. Thank you. Well, great. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming. We appreciate it and look forward to getting in some proposals from everyone. <laughs>